You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Let's pray as we uh, move into a time of reflection on Scripture. Lord, you are good, you are gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love, all the things that we've sung about you this morning. We thank you. We are in awe of your might and your power and your goodness, and we are held by your faithfulness and your goodness. So as we come to your word together today, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I'm going to begin with the scripture reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, my friends, we are already in the second week of a sort of interlude period of the church year. Uh, we are in the, the second week of our series on, sac- on sacraments, no, practices. Today we're talking about sacraments as our second week. Uh, but we're, our series is on practices. Um, today's theme is sacraments, which goes along with the week, week's theme on the church calendar, which is Baptism of Christ Sunday. Uh, yesterday was Epiphany, this beautiful feast, uh, this celebration of the Magi coming to visit the Lord Jesus, the baby Jesus. Um, and I know that some of you think I'm making all this stuff up, right? That, come on, Pastor Andrew, you talked about Christ the King Sunday a few weeks ago and Epiphany and Baptism of the Christ Sunday, and you're just making things up, right? No, I'm not making it up, I promise. For those of you who grew up in more high church environments, you're like, you know, you know the language and all that sort of stuff. But I'm not making it up, I promise that. But I want to remind you that the church calendar mirrors Jesus' life. Christmas was this amazing like 12-day celebration of Jesus, the light of the world stepping down into darkness. Epiphany marks the shining of the light of Jesus specifically on the nations or on the Gentiles, with the first instance being the Magi visiting the young Jesus. And today we step into the next part of Jesus' life, right? We have his birth, we have these Magi coming to him, and now we have him stepping into the waters of baptism. Baptism is something that connects us to Jesus in a very meaningful way. You might even call it a sacrament. It also connects, we we also connect to Jesus in the sacrament of communion. So today I'm talking about two sacraments, 
baptism and communion. You may not have heard those words before. You may have heard those if you grew up in a different tradition. You may have, you may have heard of seven sacraments. There are a lot of different things that have sacramental qualities. But in our church, we celebrate two and call them sacraments. That is baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. So we're going to unpack a little bit of those today, both of those. Because they're practices that were uniquely set apart by Jesus as a means through which we encounter his grace. So we begin with his baptism. Jesus being baptized himself. The passage I just read from Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to highlight a portion of that right now. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Notice that. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this was John's message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We start with John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism. It's powerful, right? His baptism is powerful. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and people come from all over to receive it. That probably itself is a practice worth emulating. If I saw that in the Bible and I was just reading randomly, I'd be like, oh, if you just like baptize people for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins, they just show up and, and start repenting. That seems like a great idea. Let's try to do that. But the story doesn't end with John's baptism. As John understands it, he is just baptizing with water, but Jesus will do something else. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And look at all the rich imagery. John guides Jesus under the water. And he comes back up. You've seen this happen. We've seen this, if you've been at Riverside a while, you've maybe seen it happen right, right up here. But this is where we, we usually don't see this part. Heaven is torn open. I don't even know what that looks like. What, is he, what does it look like for heaven to be torn open? Um, and the spirit descends down like a dove. And then there's a voice. So this is not just a visual experience. It's a multi-sensory experience. The voice says, you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased. What an incredible, powerful declaration to hear at baptism. If I were the one making the decisions back in the early church, I probably would not try to emulate Jesus' baptism. I would assume that this experience, heaven tearing open, the spirit descending like a dove, the voice of the Father would be like a -a one-of-a-kind experience, special thing that happened to Jesus, probably not going to happen to anybody else. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, though, I could wrap my head around a little more easily, right? Does that make more sense to you? Like, I repent and I want to be forgiven, so I come to the baptism, right? I declare my repentance, the Lord forgives my sins. Boom. Love it. But John, the Baptist, has already let the cat out of the bag. Jesus is going to do something different. He will baptize us, not just just with repentance and the forgiveness of sins, but with the Holy Spirit, not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And when we say, baptize you with the Holy Spirit, what does he mean? Does it mean that the heavens are going to tear open? Does it mean that a dove is going to fall on us? Does it mean that if you don't hear a voice, something went wrong with your baptism? Okay, baptism is associated with 
at least all these things. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins, water, right? That's a big part of baptism. The Holy Spirit and the affirming voice of the Father, right? Based on this story, we have all these things that are connected somehow to baptism. Repentance, the forgiveness of sins, water, the Holy Spirit, and the affirming voice of the Father. And it just so happens that in Matthew's gospel, one of the last things Jesus says has to do with baptism. And you've probably heard these words if you've been around church for a while. Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus charges his disciples with a task of making disciples and baptizing them in the name and the power of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus calls his disciples to practice baptism with discipleship and teaching. And not only does he do this to the Holy Spirit, not only does this come from the Holy Spirit, but also is inextricably tied to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are to be baptized in the name of all three, all of God, the whole deal. We're just going to keep pushing through because the Apostle Paul also talks about baptism in Romans chapter 6. And he's leading the charge of making disciples of all nations, right? That's kind of his role in the New Testament. He is going out and making disciples of all nations. That's kind of his job. That's his thing. He's proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, to all these different places that didn't know about Yahweh. And now he's telling them about Jesus. And he says this in Romans chapter 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was risen from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Look at that. Baptism is also being buried into death, baptized into death, united with him, in death, and also united with him, with Jesus, in resurrection, into new life, into eternal life. So, the story of baptism. Jesus' ministry begins with baptism, right? Jesus' ministry begins. He comes to John the Baptist in the Jordan River, is baptized. Heaven breaks open. Spirit descends like a dove. This is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. That's how Jesus' ministry begins. And now, at the end, baptism is a visible sign of the complete work of his whole ministry from beginning to end. The, uh, the sign of death and resurrection, of being united with Christ in the whole story, the whole kit and caboodle. You are united with him in his death and also you are united with him in a new life raised from the dead, never to die again. And that brings us to the practice of sacraments. 
And I know the word sacraments, I don't, I, I don't know what your background is. For some people, it sounds very Catholic or very at least stained glass church, and clearly this is not a stained glass church, right? Look around. Um, but I hope you don't get tripped up on the word sacrament because it's not that important of a word. The word is not that important. The concept is very important. The word, if it trips you up, use another word. Just talk about baptism and communion. That's totally fine with me. St. Augustine defined the word sacrament in a way that I think really hasn't been topped in 17 centuries, and he called it this, very simple, a visible form of an invisible grace. People have written thousands and thousands of pages on what sacraments are and aren't, and argued back and forth, and gotten real mad about what sacraments are and aren't. But the simplicity of this definition, a visible form of an invisible grace, is great. It's visible, right? It shows up visibly. A person steps into the water, goes under the water, and comes back up. We hear the splash of the water. We see the dry skin and hair become wet. We see a person go down, and we see them come back up. It is a visual experience, right? Baptism. But what is happening at baptism is more than just a person getting wet. Do we agree with that? It's not just a person getting wet. It's not just like any old day at the pool. There is an invisible grace at work. And I cannot fully explain to you, nor will I try to fully explain to you what that grace looks like or how it works. But I can show you what baptism looks like when we practice it, right? I can show you what it looks like when we practice it. And Jesus has called us to trust that he is at work in the practice. He's called us to do the practice and to trust that he is at work and that his Holy Spirit is at work when we practice it. It is a grace that we can know some of what that grace means. That we can have any idea that that his grace is working at all is a grace itself. So baptism itself is a sacrament, a visible sign of repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit and an affirming voice of the Father. It is a visible sign of discipleship and teaching. It is a visible sign of attachment to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a visible sign of burial with him in his death and unity with him in his resurrection. In the sacrament, we express our faith in God. Something that we all know can be a little fickle. Anybody experience that? Faith in God that wobbles a little bit at times? I think if we're all honest, our faith wobbles. But something that is not fickle And something that does not wobble is something that we receive at baptism, which is grace from God, right? The grace of God, the faithfulness of God does not wobble and does not waver, right? It is not fickle. And that is the power of baptism. But baptism is something we practice once. As Paul writes in Ephesians 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And of course, there are many people in this room who have actually been baptized more than once, right? I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but some of us have been baptized more than once, including this guy, okay? Some people have been baptized more than once. 
Theologically, I don't think anybody needs to get baptized more than once. I'm going to say that. But practically, I understand that many who are baptized as youngsters also do get baptized as adults, and I get that. Baptism is something we practice once-ish. But there's another sacrament that we return to, and I'm just being honest, another sacrament that we return to again and again, and is meant to be returned to again and again. And these words from 1 Corinthians 11 should sound really familiar to you if you've been around Riverside Church. I think you've heard them once or twice. And these, this is directly from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Words sound familiar. And just one chapter earlier, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Okay, back to St. Augustine's definition of a sacrament. Anybody remember it? A visible something, something, or a something, something, invisible. It's a visible sign, a visible form of an invisible grace. Some of you got it. I just couldn't hear you all. The visible form, as we come to the table, is a table, and it is bread, and it is a cup. What we appear to be doing when we come to communion is simply getting a small piece of bread, and drinking a small bit of juice or wine, depending on what church you're at. But again, this is only the visible form. What is actually happening inwardly is more profound, right? 1 Corinthians 10 says that we are participating in the blood of Christ and the body of Christ when we come to the table. Participating in. There's something, particip something participatory about sharing a meal anyway, right? Is there not? If we prepare a meal for our family, each person doesn't automatically receive the sustenance of that meal. We all know this, right? Um, to receive the sustenance of the meal, they have to come, everybody has to come and sit at the table and participate, eat, right? The food doesn't just get transferred like magically. They have to eat the food. And a family dinner can be a unifying and wonderful space because we are participating in it with each other, right? Beautiful thing. I want us to think about, and maybe some of you just don't even have to imagine this at all because you've been there, the sort of things that can turn a meal at a table into a real bummer. Maybe you've been there. Again, an unwelcome person shows up. Somebody you were counting on fails to show up. Somebody is unable to eat any of the food. Maybe allergies somebody didn't know about. Somebody complains about the food the whole time. Hopefully that person is less than 10 years old. Hopefully. 
A few eat way more than their share, while others don't get enough. Tensions run high. People start throwing forks. These sorts of things are a huge bummer at any table, right? Are they not? And how much more would they be a bummer at the Lord's table, right? First Corinthians 11, if you want to read that whole chapter, has a lot more to say to a church that was celebrating it all wrong. In fact, so wrong that Paul says, you are not celebrating the Lord's Supper at all. What you're doing is not, definitively not, the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it's offensive. The wealthy would get there early, eat all the food, get drunk, so that there wasn't enough for people when, who came in later in the day after working an honest day's work, that they wouldn't have enough at the table. And Paul says, that's, that's not the Lord's Supper. Don't call it that. That's not what you're doing. So what does Paul do in that situation? Does he say, well, we tried the whole communion thing, we tried the whole Lord's table thing, and it just didn't work. People were dumb, people were mean to each other, and so we're not going to do it. No, that's not what Paul said. It didn't deter the church from celebrating the meal, but made them double down on the significance and the seriousness of it. Part of what makes it so significant and serious is the fact that it signifies such central ideas to what it means to be a community of people following Jesus together. The bread, and the, cup, the bread and the cup, they signify this. Do this in remembrance of me. And who's me? Jesus, right? He's our host. He's the host at the table. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And the bread and the cup, they also signify a new covenant. The promises that God has made to us and are entering into a new covenant relationship with him. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. There's several covenants in Scripture, right? The Lord's covenant with Abraham that makes his descendants into a people called out. Covenant law of Moses. The everlasting covenant that the Lord made with David. There's, there's several covenants throughout Scripture. The Lord honors all of his covenants. And he invites us to come again and again to his table to be reminded that his covenant love isn't going anywhere. He invites us again and again to his table, to his family table, and says, you are invited because his covenant love isn't going anywhere. This is the new covenant in my blood. Every single time we come to that table and eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and... We are reminded once again of the faithful, covenant-keeping, forever love that the Lord has for us and has showed us in Christ. And the meal is participation in the covenant through the body and blood of Christ. So with our bodies, with our hands, and with our mouths, we participate with Christ. What does that mean exactly? I'm not here to tell you or explain it exactly. I'm sorry. But that is what it says. And I hope that gives you hope and hope that gives you life. And I hope that nourishes you when you come to the table. These are both, baptism and communion, visible signs of inward grace. The outward symbols are simple, but they're potent. We go down in the water, we come back out of the water, we eat bread, we drink cup. We celebrate forgiveness, we celebrate salvation, we celebrate the new covenant of God. And I don't, want to, I don't want us to miss one more thing that's central to both of these practices. 
both baptism and communion, and that is how they unify the body of Christ. The language of unity is present thickly in the descriptions of both baptism and communion. In Ephesians 4, Paul was clear to say, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We're baptized into one body which connects us to the one God and connects us to one another in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is clear to mention that we who are many are one body because we eat from the one loaf. We're bound to God in the communion meal, but we're also bound to one another. And not just one another in this room, one another in the church writ large. Churches that take the, take the sacrament of communion every week. We are bound to one another. And it is really uh, sad, heartbreaking, it's hard to even come up with the right words. It is tragic how divisive the sacraments have been over the centuries. Literal wars have been fought over baptism. Literal, actual wars. I mean, you know, baptism and other things, right? There's, there's always like a package deal of several things that the war is about, right? Churches have split again and again, and then again and again and again and again over the practice and theology of sacraments. Often there's an attempt to crack the code of the exact right understanding of how the sacraments work. And I think that attempt quite precisely and exactly misses the point of what sacraments are. If the intent was for us to be able to explain every detail of what it means, then it would have come to us in words. But how did it come to us? In symbols, in physical signs. The closer we get to the simplicity of the symbols and the realities, I think the better. Simple elements, water, wine, bread. Essential, simple staples of life, of daily life in our regular lives and of daily life in Christ. If you've never been baptized and you're feeling called to be cleansed, like you're feeling a sense of that, you need to be cleansed or to be washed or to be rid of your sins, to bury them in death and participate with Jesus in his resurrection, I invite you to get baptized as soon as possible and come talk to me because I would love to set that up, fill the tank up, and get it ready to go. It's not ready today, but, you know, let's talk. And I hope for, for the rest of us, if you have been baptized or if you haven't, whatever it is, if you're trying to nurture and nourish your faith in Christ, as you come again and again to the table, you will experience the deep ministry of the Holy Spirit in this meal. I trust that, that, that you will participate with Christ and over your lifetime be shaped and formed into the type of person, hopefully, by God's grace, who is more free from the power of sin in your life, more generous toward and deeply connected to your sisters and brothers in Christ by coming to the table again and again and again. May it be a time and a place where no matter what you're facing in this life, you can take a moment this moment at the table to celebrate the healing and forgiving and transforming work that Christ is doing in your life. And even if you feel like he's a long ways from done, you might feel that way. You might feel like he's a long ways from done doing all that healing, forgiving work in your life. 
when you come to this table, you can be reminded and assured that everything is all right. Because Christ has made it so. Because he has called you his son, and he has called you his daughter. Invite the musicians to come back up. I've already said a lot of the words that I normally say as we come to the table. But I want to offer these words to you. This invitation. And again, if you're not sure what following Jesus is all about, if you're not sure what this, what this is about, even after the sermon, if you're not quite sure, you're free to just stay in your chair. You don't have to come to the table. But I invite anybody who follows Jesus, whether you're part of this church or another church, whatever, if, you, if your desire is to follow Jesus, you're invited to his table. So they're going to sing a few songs, and as we sing, you're invited to come forward, take the elements, you can take them back to your seat, and you can uh, share them. And if, and if anybody wants prayer, myself and maybe some others will be back there available to pray for you. But I offer this invitation today. Come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the incredible gift that you offer to us. We thank you for the visible signs of invisible grace in our lives that there are things that we can latch onto, practices we can, we can take up that remind us who we belong to, that remind us that we are utterly dependent on your grace, that remind us that we are connected to each other, that we are, remind us that we are connected to you, the head of this body. Thank you for your grace, your mysterious, wonder-working grace. Lord, nourish us as we come to your table today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.